Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you very much for taking time to be with us. We're here providing, as always, useful information and insights to help communities, companies, uh, nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere needs to be. Uh, today, we're going to take uh, an in-depth look at a broadband project that I can definitely say without reservation has had to work hard to overcome a range of challenges to earn its spot at the table of broadband success stories, but um, I feel like this project is definitely a winner. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, you can join us here live in the uh, chat room that happens uh, along with the show on the Blog Talk Radio uh, Gigabit Nation homepage. Jay Ovatore, my online host, co-host, is in charge there. So come on by and let's uh, keep things lively. All right. So um, our guest today is Todd Marriott, who is the CEO of Utopia. And Utopia stands for Utah Telecommunications Open Infrastructure Agency. Todd, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Craig, and thanks for having us. Yes, and so now Utopia is uh, currently has united uh, 16 Utah cities with one broadband infrastructure. Uh, now, last month we had uh, Lori Sherwood on the show, and she's in charge of a 10-county project, and she gave us some interesting insights on how to get a project like this off the ground when you have multiple jurisdictions uh, involved. I'd like to say that they sort of painted the before picture because they're just literally at the beginning of their uh, project, only broke ground a few a couple of months ago. And Utopia, to me, represents the, the after picture. You, you guys have been up and running. And, in fact, I interviewed you, I think, Todd, about a year ago and uh, it was for an article I was working on. And so I wanted to look at some of the issues that you've encountered and the challenges that you've overcome and and do so in a way that helps uh, prep listeners um, to, to to get an understanding of you know things they need to do you know once the once the project gets uh, gets rolling. So this is really a second life for Utopia in, in a sense, isn't it, Todd? I mean, since you've come on board. Well, I think Utopia would represent probably a cat of nine lives at this point. We <laughs> we definitely are in a resurgence mode, though. Mm-hmm. So. Describe a little bit of what was going on with Utopia. Uh, we'll call it Utopia Part One or its first life. Uh, how did that project get started, and what were some of the hurdles uh, and setbacks they had to deal with? Well, Utopia uh, started. Its genesis is found in, in the need of cities along the Wasatch Front in Utah uh, to be connected. They were it, there was insufficient connectivity to them. Uh, they begged the incumbents, Comcast and Quest at the time, to please provide better connectivity. That's probably a, the same story most people face across the country, uh, and they were told no. Uh, the cities then offered to pay for in part or most of the infrastructure if they would do it, and they were still told no. Uh, there were cities such as Brigham City that and others who were losing large parts of the revenue base because um, – that connectivity wasn't there. And, uh, for example, Flying J Truck Stop in Brigham City, uh, their lines got disconnected and they lost millions of dollars 
and, and so they, they moved out of Brigham City, uh, costing that area a lot of jobs and revenue. So the cities had had enough. Uh, they put bonded up together, and uh, the, like you said, there are 16 cities that went forward, 11 of them that pledged taxpaying dollars to put this in place, and that really is how it got started. Interesting. So the, the city asked, and you said at one point the city even offered to pay to build the infrastructure, and the incumbents refused? Yeah, the, Utah, uh, many may know or may not know, is a very conservative political state. Uh, most people here don't believe the government should be involved where the private sector uh, could be involved. And so, you know, its initial roots were, look, let's, let's have the private sector do this. And the private sector basically thumbed their nose up at them, uh, told them uh, things that weren't true, and really put the cities in a position to, to reexamine whether this was a role for the private sector or if this was public infrastructure. The cities came to that conclusion quickly that this was indeed critical infrastructure, and that's how they see it today. Mm-hmm. So now that uh, that you've come on, well, you've, you've been on board since when in this whole kind of evolution? Like when did they initially start? And they were running for a while before you got involved, right? Utopia really got started in 2002 in earnest. Um, and I came on board in the late spring of 2008. Okay, so they have been running for a while. So when you came on board, what what did you see as some of the uh, priority challenges? I know there were probably a lot of them, but like, what were the priority challenges that you felt needed to be addressed quickly to turn the situation around? Well, Utopia's number one problem was it wasn't making enough revenue per user, so our average revenue per user was too low. Um, we didn't control our own destiny, as you know. Utopia is an open, active Ethernet, an open access system. It's very unique. There's not many of them in the nation like this. And so it runs like a freeway system or like an airport where uh, we put down the plumbing, if you will, and allow anybody that's qualified, uh, service provider-wise, to provide the services. In fact, we are legally prohibited uh, from providing retail services uh, here in Utah. So that's an interesting model, and Utopia was faced at the time with many obstacles. One was the average revenue per user. Uh, they had just been and gone through, and something you may want to address today, but they had just gone through a big struggle with uh, the Rural Utility Service, RUS, under the Department of Agriculture, and really hadn't dug a ditch, a trench, or board in almost a year at that point. So the other challenges were that Utopia had depended on outside companies, uh, consultants and other uh, similar entities to provide their services or network operations, and it was always easier for them to spend Utopia's money than it is maybe for you to spend your own money. And so there were there were just a host of challenges at the time that we had to kind of revamp and redo and uh, put into place differently than it than it existed at that point. So if you had to rank like number one, number two, and number three of this is what we need to do first, this is what we need to do second, and this is third, what would, well, what were those? Well, I created a six-phase strategy that kind of 
mirrors what you're asking. I, I, the first thing is I, I, what I needed to do at the time was to create a baseline. Uh, Utopia, we really didn't even know where we were. The number of customers, our revenues, if they were matching up, if we were billing correctly, we didn't know. Uh, customer satisfaction, we didn't know how to run our own network. Our network at the time uh, may not have been as robust as it could have been. Um, so we needed to get baselines in almost every aspect of our business from the network, its operations, to outside plant, contracts, service providers. At the time, we had a service provider, MSTAR, who held about 65% of the customers or more on Utopia. They hadn't paid their bills in well over two years and owed Utopia at that point about $3 million. So um, we needed to get a baseline. Uh, then we needed to become, um, you know, we, we had to refinance at that point because Utopia was out of money. Uh, the federal government had reneged on its promises to provide a loan that had been approved, uh, which, by the way, we have filed a lawsuit against the federal government and our U.S. Uh, on September 1st of this year in regards to that. So we then, number three, needed to become operationally ready. I felt like I hired some of the very best people to be able to manage the affairs. We we can't afford, we have over 1,500 miles of fiber at that point, and, and there was no way for us to manage and do everything. But we needed people on board so that when contractors, for example, came in and said, we've hit rock and we need a change order, that we could sign off on a change order intelligently and, and that we understood our own business. As we became operationally ready, we created pilot programs to try to create uh, a better sense of the community for what Utopia was and is, to control our marketing uh, pilot programs that created scalable and sustainable business models. Uh, the step five was to proliferate and put business models in place that were self-sustainable. We've done that and are now in six, phase six where we're, we, we kind of constantly do all those phases on a regular basis still. But phase six now is that we're trying to replicate on a consistent basis um, those scalable models. Very, very interesting. So I want to take this one step further. I'm going to give you a list of scenarios or conditions or whatever, um, challenges that, that potentially various of members of the audience might encounter. And using Utopia as kind of the backdrop or providing context, tell me how you would address those. So let's start with one, and this will be uh, a number of project teams will have this issue. You're in an existing, uh, you're, you're in a place where existing state laws are not favorable for community networks. How do you adapt to that, or how do you plan for that to, to make sure that that doesn't become an anchor on the project? That can be the single biggest problem and one of the most deadly problems to a project like this because uh, the incumbents hold a very powerful lobby and they influence our decision makers. And so it's important for local and civic and, and state governmental officials to understand the importance. If, if communities don't really feel like this is true infrastructure, it's never going to work. And so we work tirelessly with our local political leaders to make sure they're up to speed on what we're doing, uh, what we're going uh, about doing, and there are there are some problems uh, that can be restrictive 
in some states in, in terms of getting anything off the ground. And so you, you may have to work at getting those things changed before you can even get started in some locations. I think Comcast and Quest, especially Quest, felt at the time that they had us in a corner, you know, that we they had structured laws so that we could only borrow money in a certain way, that we could only provide services in a certain way. I think that they felt like they had handcuffed the project sufficiently to make it unsuccessful, and, and for a time, uh, I think that was the case. So I think you have to evaluate in your own state and loca locality whether or not it's even feasible. And I, I think that there are those locations where it's, it's very, very difficult to even get started. Is there any uh, – so after you've done the examination of the feasibility side, um, you, you clearly point out that the incumbents painted a picture in the state legislature or they created an environment in the state legislature that uh, made it difficult at every turn, but then how do you combat that? I think you have to do a number of things. Number one, you have to look at the real facts. Uh, the incumbents are good at, at, at making promises, uh, saying, look, we're, one of the faulty myths that they propagate, the fallacies really, is that if there was demand for this, we would be providing it. And the reason that that's not ever going to be correct is because to provide fiber to a home is very expensive. And you can't, there, there's no way Quest or Comcast or any of them can really justify it in this current environment putting that infrastructure in place. Um, these are CEOs who have to answer to, to and provide dividends to stockholders, etc. And so for them to say, well, if there was a demand, we would do it. Uh, it's also faulty because, because the networks are insufficient. They're shared access networks with promises up to and, and networks that continue to have gatekeeping um, influences on them. We don't get the applications out there that would be in place that would create demand, uh, additional HD, video, surveillance, monitoring sensors and these applications that if there was an addressable market um, that allowed those with self-interest and free market enterprise to develop uh, products for those, we'd have, we, we, would, we would drive it. It's a chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to educate the legislature and, and, and policy decision makers on what it is that we're trying to do. This was, this was almost exactly analogous to the electrical infrastructure of a century ago. In fact, the Hoover Dam, you know, was, uh, when that was envisioned, people thought, why would you ever need that much electricity? Why would you ever need electricity to every home in that region? A famous court case said in 1907, we have sufficient whale oil and coal and gas to light our lights. Uh, yet look at what electricity does today. And, and nobody ever envisioned the invention of the electric motor, uh, the small electric motor, or microwaves, or radios, or televisions, or, or computers. Right? And so that's where we are today. We think my grandma still refers to that time as her electrical bill as the light bill, because that light bill uh, still is what it does. It, it lit it lit lights, but that's it does way more than that, of course. Mm -hmm. And then, so so you're talking about a major uh, education aspect uh, is involved. So let's take another scenario. You have 
local and regional media that's been covering the trials of a project and maybe some of the media is balanced coverage, maybe some is not so favorable. How do you stand up to that particular challenge? It is something that has to be figured in to your to how you start a project because you have to have good public relations uh, entities that are helping you out, and, and that's a battle you're fighting. If you think about it, not only is the lobby for decision makers very powerful, but they spend a lot of money advertising with the radios, the TVs, and newspapers. And so it's very difficult at times to get fair and balanced coverage out of the local media. And there's so much money that they put into making sure that people misunderstand how that works, that that uh, people really, they read those things. And, and even though much of it is not true at times or it's misleading, people believe what they read. Uh-huh. Interesting. So you basically have to counter that in some way. Uh, and, and I can imagine that it's difficult if you go to the, lo- the editor of the local paper and on the one hand, that they say there's a wall between state and church, meaning the people who write the news and the people who run the news business. Yet you know uh, in your heart of hearts that maybe a million dollars a year could be going from the incumbent to that media outlet. How do you how do you dance that dance? Well, I think I think what helps fight the fight is the fact that that these kinds of projects are in the right. They are public infrastructure. They are for community is good and what does it for you is the fact that most of these incumbents have a hard time providing the services to the communities that they promise I think you know the cable companies do a better job of it than most where they you know have deliverable speeds now that a lot of people right now are finding to be satisfactory because they don't know what else is available but most you know the, the minute you turn your back they raise the prices. They don't treat you right. And so I think the covenants make it easier because the community gets fed up with poor service, with no choice, with being underserved. Mm-hmm. Now, coming back to the to the media side, do you then run a, a counter PR campaign? And if so, how do you how do you structure that to be effective given the, the bias inherent in the system? I think, you know, if you look at what Utopia is doing, uh, we provide connectivity that is so significantly more for significantly less so that entities like the Boys and Girls Club, schools, charter schools, entities like that can really benefit from this community fiber uh, capability. So those kinds of things can filter into the press. We have family history centers, for example, in Tremont that used to spend uh, 27 minutes per computer. They had 45 computers, and it would take a gentleman the entire weekend to come in and back up those computers to the headquarters, and now he's able to come in, and he can't punch the buttons fast enough. To, you know, he, he just gained two years of his life. A, a teacher in Brigham City, Utah, who who's gained two hours a night because she's able to work from home and do a lot of this online stuff she's doing. Those kinds of things make real differences in people's lives, and those are human interest stories that find their way, uh, even though you don't have the money to spend, in, into the influence of these decisions. So you're basically saying you know, focus a lot on the human interest stories 
and the successes at the community level to to get your story in the media. Yeah, and I think what really drives decision at the end of the day is economic development and retention. We have a, a lot of projects here in Utah that have, in large part, come and brought critical jobs and in, in, in industry to the community because of this type of infrastructure being available to them. Almost every company, our state uh, broadband ag- or agency last week said, almost every major company that comes into the state right now the first thing they ask is, can I get sufficient connectivity? Now, the decision might be made because of the tax breaks they get or the type of people they can hire or whatever, but the case is uh, it's always initially, can I get this type of broadband? In many cases, they can't. And so if a community wants to retain, attract, and hold in that infrastructure, then they have to be able to have broadband connectivity. Hmm. So, so the the economic development side of it is a uh, a factor not only then with influencing the, the the press as far as getting the story to them and hopefully getting it out, but it seems like then you've got to focus on the economic development story as part of the region or the community's marketing efforts or PR efforts to potential businesses and others. I think too, Craig. You know, really. Reporters that are good, righteous, decent people, if they can take an honest evaluation and an honest look at what's going on, that oftentimes you can get a fair shake. I know that there are those reporters that no matter what you do uh, are tainted by their own biases. But there are those that report that, that, that are journalists that will give you a fair shake if indeed what you're doing is right and, or will at least give you a fair shake, an equal uh, say in in a story. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, all right. So moving to the to another stereo, uh, scenario, not scenario, but another challenge. So the private sector providers are hostile and not cooperative. <laughs> Clearly, that is the case. How, how do you? How does the community dr- address that issue? Well, I think you know you're talking primarily in our area, uh, Comcast, and, and what is now called CenturyLink. And I think that that's the biggest thing is that uh, they they have their infrastructure. It's last century copper infrastructure, and they need to protect that. It's a it's a vital part of their bottom line, and so they're going to be fierce about it. I was recently, in fact, this last week at the Firewood Home, I had dinner with a former executive from one of these incumbent uh, providers, who uh, I probably shouldn't give his name, but he said, look. When these types of projects came into uh, parts of the south, uh, west, southeast, we were simply told that you squash it at all costs. You know, instead of, hey, let's look at it and see if there's a way to work with the communities. Let's, let's see if there's a way to make it a part of our model. Is there, is there some way to be a good partner? They're told to squash it. They're told to eliminate it. To, 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 they don't even take a look at it. And so that's the current status. So basically, communities coming in need to assume they've got a hostile environment and they need to dig in. Is, are there ways to counter that uh, that uh, state of affairs? Well, we we make open invitations on a regular basis 
to these incumbent providers to where it makes sense to them to work with us. We would love to work with CenturyLink and Comcast. Um, you know, they provide a great deal of expertise. We are simply plumbers. We're an airport. So it doesn't make sense for them not to use the infrastructure or the network. It's open access. It's the same to them as it would be to anybody else. So I, I don't know of a really good way yet to to work with those hostile entities. If anybody's got a good idea, we'd be open and we <laughs> open our network. And I, and I provide, I, you know, I I provide an open national challenge on your radio today. If any incumbent carrier out there can provide these networks in our community the way they're being provided, Utopia will step away and we won't be involved and we'll allow that network to be in place and we will support it. And when I say that, of course, it needs to be an open access, community-based, fiber-to-the-premise network. And any entity nationally that wants to take me up on that challenge, we would be happy to step back and allow you to do that. We invite all national carriers who provide services to customers to where they can't participate in that fashion to use our network to provide end services to the customers, business or residential, to business sectors or governmental. Interesting. Well, I am going to definitely make sure this gets relayed and see what kind of uh, response you get. Is it likely that, though, that the response will be more from smaller regional providers who don't view this through the same shades as the large incumbents do, uh, that the locals, local providers will be the ones that will step up to the plate? Well, we would take all commerce. Uh, really, th this effort is an effort to establish critical infrastructure in our communities. If there's a way to do it better, more efficient, more cost-effective, or, you know, oftentimes governments aren't the most effective ways of going about things, we're, we're happy to help facilitate that in any way, regional, national, local. Excellent, excellent. So let me roll out another challenge that, I'm, that you guys have faced, and I'm sure others will as well, especially with the multi-jurisdictional uh, or multi-city projects. You have local politicians that are either neutral or interested um, in the project or they're vocally opposed to the project. How do you meet that kind of a challenge? And I'm sorry, Craig, challenges from local leaders? Uh, right. So your local politicians, whether we're talking city council or we're talking the you know, the mayor or whatever the equivalent of a mayor is, if you have any number of those kinds of folks who are uh, neutral, disinterested, maybe vocally opposing the project, and maybe if you have ten cities, you only have this case in one or two, but you're trying to get all ten cities on board, how do you, how do you deal with the local politicians who haven't seen the light yet? Well, now you're getting down to the heart of the matter. Uh, really, these projects live and die with city councils. They are the decision makers. They're the gatekeepers. Utopia in and of itself is owned by the cities, and those managers of those cities are the city councils and the mayors. So I answer to a 16-board uh, board and 16-member board, and they are appointed by the mayors and city councils. So it's important, it's absolutely critical that we remain with, we have integrity in that process, that we remain um, true to what they've, they've given us to do because they are, in effect, they really are our bosses. 
Uh, and it, it is a challenge because you may get a mayor or city council that is in favor, and these election cycles obviously turn over, and you can get a mayor who's not only not for it but hostile against it, uh, and city councils that change. And those are dynamics that are very difficult, especially in a case where you have utopia that has had, you know, utopia has really made almost every mistake in the book. And we've cost ourselves in the past a lot of political capital in not being efficient, not deploying properly at times. And so now that we are sustainable, we still have a lot of those deep wounds and scars. And so politically in the community, um, entities like the Utah Taxpayers Association, that, I don't know, Craig, that kind of sounds like somebody who would, who would ever vote against the Patriot Act, right, or No Child Left Behind Act, right? Exactly. So they, they, call themselves, they call themselves the Utah Taxpayers Association. But what they really are is a lobbyist group, and their two big members are Comcast and Quest. And the president of that entity, um, of the Utah Taxpayers Association, is also the president of the Senate. So you have those conflicts of interest, and they try to dredge up mud and mislead people in the community as oft times as they get a chance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're dealing with that all the time. And so oftentimes when you get these local leaders that come into office, they have been tainted and biased by information that may not be accurate, mm-hmm. or it's definitely self-interested parties that have kind of imposed their will in the process. And so that is at the heart of the matter. And I answer to those mayors and councils. And, and, and that really is where these things live and die. Mm, interesting. Because I know that in... Um one particular uh, city, uh, it was an interesting case where the most uh, vocal, well, one of the two most vocal critics of the local uh, muni broadband effort then went on to become mayor. (laughs) And everyone kind of sits back and goes, uh-oh, you know, what's going to happen to that project? Because they, you know, everyone was worried that the incoming mayor wanted to cut all ties with the past mayor. I mean, going beyond just broadband policy, but across the board, you know, we just try to deep six the project. And I think what happened, as I have watched it evolve over time, is that, yes, the mayor did reject a lot of initiatives by the predecessor, but then reconstituted the broadband plan and policy so that it became his. So it's still moving forward, but it's now his and in his sort of own likeness and image as opposed to where it started, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in this case, we're lucky because the mission still moves broadband forward. It tries to get it to a lot of people who deserve it. But I think it's an interesting sort of – I throw that out there as sort of an interesting you know, discussion point of – Okay, you got a hostile person coming in, but sometimes the hostility isn't so much disinformation. It's they're trying to draw a difference between the previous administration. Well, there, there are so many different scenarios like that. And, and, and that, like I said before, that is at the heart of the matter. That's where it needs to be managed and, and, and uh, you know, you, that's who you answer to. Right. Okay. Uh, we have a... We have, we have, a, we have, for example, one of our larger cities. Uh, one of our stakeholders, is, he was a former Quest employee. Um, he's an ardent supporter, and he sees the need and understood sounds that that uh, CenturyLink or Quest at the time was never going to be able to do what they say they were going to do, 
and uh, that they, that they desperately need us. But we have close ties there. We have people that sit on boards, people that are being elected now that um, certainly um, opposition forces help elect into office. So it, it, that is the single biggest challenge. Right. So you you basically got to know and cultivate your friends as well. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's talk about the financial model a little. And this is actually the conversation that you and I had like a uh, 13 months ago, it looks like. And um, when we talked, you described what you call contractual utilities enhancement, which is a little bit of a complicated or a complex process. But if you can make it easy for the layperson to understand, I felt that that was a very good move on, on Utopia's part. So one of the things that we discovered in our model was that we weren't sustainable. Our average revenue per user, like I said at the very beginning of the conversation, was significantly too low. And so we have created the ability to start recouping some of those access, that access to our network, and increase the average revenue per user. We did so, uh, you can imagine my marketing manager up in Brigham City when I said, you need to go to Brigham City and we have no money to deploy Brigham City, so you need to ask citizens of Brigham City if they're interested enough to get fiber, they need to pay $3,000 a piece to connect. And if they don't connect, we can give them financing to do so, but we'll have to put a lien on their homes. And so, you know, that doesn't sound like maybe something that would work out really well. Fact of the matter is, after we got done with Brigham City, nearly 31.5% of the city had joined, and 25% of them had paid up front. So when you ask, this is a community, by the way, that would be very Mayberry. It's a very clean-cut, middle-class uh, community that had experienced 500 um, job layoffs just that month that we got started uh, to ATK because of the space program had been cut. So this wasn't this was a place also where there is was quest and, and Comcast in abundance. And thirty one point five percent first time through of that community said, We'll pay three thousand dollars a piece to connect. And what that allowed us to do, and that allowed us to be sustainable, because this fiber is very expensive. And so we can't just go and churn and burn through an area like Comcast or Quest can, where they've had these old technologies in place for our century. We have to put brand new lit fiber to every home through dirt and rock and mud that's going to establish infrastructure for the next century. It's expensive to do so. I can't connect to your house, Craig, and then have you disconnect the following month. You know, when I put that in, that is your water line. That is your electricity. That's your connection. And on top of that, you can choose from a myriad of service providers. But that's your connectivity from that point forward, and that's how people are doing it today. Today, we use something very similar, where we call it a queue or a contractual utility enhancement, which allows people to establish a connection the same way to their home or simply put it on their water bill, if you will, and they pay it to the city. It's about 20 bucks a month, and that provides them with that connectivity, and they can layer on top of that any number of sources. We 
every home that we install now is gig enabled. Um, we're not even talking about Meg anymore because we can see to the future. Uh, Newsweek just about a year ago said by the year 2020, homes will have to have a 200 symmetrical up and down then connection to the to the world wide web. And and today uh, people are struggling still to get 30, 40, some places none. So when we connect a home, we're connecting it with a home that's enabled to be gig enabled. And in fact, if they need 10 gig enabled, ultimately they can do that because as you know with fiber, it's just the electronics on each end. So what this allows us to do is be more sustainable. We're also working on new business models, continued evolving business models that allow us to not have to put a commitment to pay off that whole ball of wax over 20 years, but allows them to um, connect uh, for a shorter period of time because we, we find that when people can have that type of connectivity, it's very unlikely that they leave. But we have to be sustainable. I can't spend taxpayer dollars and not recoup a return on that investment, not get that money back. And we did that for a lot of years, and we can't do that anymore. So everything we do has to be sustainable. Were there any legal challenges to implementing this program? I can, I can imagine the political backlash, backlash was intense, which we'll actually I'll discuss that in a minute. But were there any legal challenges to, to this approach? No. Okay, so you guys no, we did, did home, your homework. We, 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 did, we did our homework, yep. Okay. Now, let's talk about the the um, the image issue, because I think that from what I remember, uh, there was quite a bit of negative publicity, mainly because people were twisting the, the, the details of the plan in such a way that they painted it in the most unfavorable light. Um, is that a fair assessment? I think you have to look at it in context. So of the 31.5% who signed up, uh, there was a small percentage, 17, uh, 17 of those people that signed up said that the person who signed them up, and we used outside door-to-door advocates to go out and educate and get sign-ups, the 17 of those people uh, had been educated in a way that was um, not informative enough for them to have made a decision. And there's probably another 30 behind that that say, you know, I didn't really understand the lean part as much. This is out of... Uh, you know, there's a small percentage of the 31.5%. So what entities like the Utah Taxpayers Association did under direction of Comcast and Quest, and I still remember in a meeting, uh, a council meeting that was a very heated meeting when this was being approved, Comcast, who had been monitoring this process all the way along, I think they just felt like it would never work. And when here it was going forward, it wasn't going to work, they got up and said, no one has consulted us on this. <laughs> and they immediately tried to dredge up as much backlash in that community as they could, putting out false information through Utah Taxpayers Association. And even with all of that, right, just a small percentage of those people um, were negatively impacted. Today, I think Brigham City would rank as one of the most connected cities on earth. Everybody we connected up there is one gig enabled and have fiber right to their home. I think some of the only challenges that Brigham City folks have faced with that is that some of the service providers who initially went in there weren't as good as others, 
and uh, those adjustments have been made as people, just like any airline you ride, jump from one airline to the other. So, uh, you know, of course, we, like we said before, some of those reporters that favor um, those political entities picked up some of those stories. But ultimately, um, you know, the truth got out, and it's it's a good program. In fact, if communities really knew how that worked, I think communities would would really jump on board and favor it because it allows you to use um, – you know, a bonding press process, a municipal bonding process to establish uh, critical infrastructure like water, sewer, electrical to your home. Mm-hmm. Now, while we're discussing money and finance and, and those kinds of issues, um, I, I interviewed a, uh, a private sector uh, ISP, uh, the president of that company, and he said that, you know, if we could do everything over again knowing what we know now, what we really would love to have is um, more people on our side, meaning the, the company side, who knew more about municipal finance and that more people working on the city would know and understand the basics of business accounting. Uh, does this seem like a reasonable wish? Well, yeah, I do. I think that's exactly accurate. But I think also the cities would be the first to tell you that they wish that they had had more telecom experience. Mm-hmm. And some of the the early uh, founders and those that had great vision to put this in place were attorneys and, and accountants, but didn't have a, a lot of experience in telecom. And I think that's where it hurt Utopia initially. It wasn't so much that they didn't know how to, to run a profit and loss statement, but they didn't understand uh, whether or not if a change order came in, if that was acceptable, if they were getting a good deal on on equipment, if their network was positionally was properly positioned and uh, provisioned, and so I think more on our side we would we would have said we wish we would have known more about the you know the telecom industry. Hmm. Okay. And I think that that kind of is the one point that incumbents will jump on and say, well, you know, communities don't know this business, they don't know business in general, and yada, 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 and it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket and so forth and so on. Um, and they would so have, and I think, Craig, they would, they would have a good point with that. I think that there have been a lot of communities. I still see some today that call me and, and say, look, we want to do this, and I look at their model, and it's not going to work. I think you've got, and then they go to uh, consultants who don't really have dirt under their fingernails. It just, you know, conceptually and academically, say, well, this is how it works, but I think there are very rare and few people who know how to do the municipal thing and get have dirt under their fingernails that can make it work, and I think it's, it, it is a legitimate complaint by the incumbents, but I, my, my counter to them would be, great, let's form some real uh, strategic public-private partnerships, and you use your expertise, we'll use this, we'll go get the community connected, and they're unwilling to do so. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting, you know, I did a... Um a survey, national survey of economic development professionals, and the report actually is available now. Uh, one of the, the questions was, you know, preferred business models. You know, what business model, and I gave them a list of options. There was, you know, complete private sector ownership. There was pi- public-private partnerships and several variations. And the one that, the, the model that has received the most support for the last two, three years that I've r- done the survey is um you know having the public uh, the private sector provider own and operate it and some people think that that's a challenge against the concept of community broadband whereas my counter to that is no that is actually people's first 
inclination. It is only after they go repeatedly to the private sector that they then strike out on their own because they can't get the satisfaction that they're looking for. Yeah, I, I spoke with some governments, some international governments last week at the Fiber to the Home Project, or program, conferences here were in Orlando, and, and that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to find private sector companies who will come in and, and, and do it for them. But the problem is that it's just these companies are looking for big returns and on their investment, and, and this connectivity, this infrastructure, the, the numbers just aren't there to provide that kind of uh, return. And so, like I said, in the challenge I issued before, if there's any private company out there who thinks that they can do this uh, model, uh, we'd, we'd be—I would be happy to open up our markets to, to, to facilitate it. I just don't think that you will find any of them because it just doesn't work for them. It, it's not what they want to do. And so I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of that too. But the problem is, is once we have that private model in place, now we've got a monopoly, um, and it allows them to control us. It allows them to to sell our connectivity to wireless connectivity to iPads and iPhones and gatekeep us and, and really hold us hostage like we always have been historically. What If this is true infrastructure, it's got to be like an airport. You, 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 what if you only had one airline at an airport? You know, it was whatever, ABC Airlines, and that's the only company you could ever use. They could tell you how you were to be treated, what your prices were going to be, and you had to take it. And that's not free market. And so people think just because it's private enterprise, that's a free market, and it's not. They have to use public right-of-ways. There's so much more to it. And so because they're using public right-of-ways, they're using this type of thing, that infrastructure has to be open to all to use. And if, if a private company can come in and provide an open access system and they want to fund it up, like I said before, I issued that challenge. It's a legitimate one, and we would entertain it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They just won't be able to, Craig. Right. Now, I, I, I had a conversation uh, not too long ago with someone uh, who, who based – oh, uh, when I had um, Josh and from the Three Ring Binder Project in Maine, and he described how the legislature there – basically passed the law to separate the infrastructure from the services side of telecom so that within the Public Utilities Commission, there would be a category for um, infrastructure provider and it would be governed by a set of rules and anybody could be an uh, an infrastructure provider. And then the service providers, the retail side of it, would continue to be managed and overseen as it is currently. Um, now, Utah may not be the, the ideal state for that, but but his feeling was that other states may very well take up the cause. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know exactly what it means by pick up the cause, if if you mean that well, other communities. Well, in other words, other states might decide that, well, you know, this wouldn't be a bad idea for us to do something similar. That's what I'm saying. I don't think the more conservative states might go for that. But other states like Maine, very, their legislators very well might say, you know, well, we should do the same thing. We need to separate infrastructure from services. I think what you'll find is interesting when you're talking about conservative versus non-conservative communities is that most communities like uh, Utah that's very conservative are the communities that are promoting uh, municipal fiber, Lafayette, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga. Those those uh, are very conservative 
politically. And so it's counterintuitive to what we actually see out there. I see that a lot of non-conservative political communities talk about it, but really it's the conservative communities that are actually doing something about it because they know that it promotes economic development and free market and that it is truly infrastructure. So I think that um, if we saw this in the true light, that most communities would find a way to enable that infrastructure in place and allow anybody to play on it. And I think that nationally, I don't know, I know you're, this is Gigabit Nation, but we have um, an entity called uh, Gig Nation. Mm -hmm. That is a, it's a nonprofit entity that we're working with other like-minded communities across the United States. And I think that the next step for us to start doing is to be peering with one another. We need to be providing um, addressable markets that are bigger than the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that are currently in the community. We need to be able to provide millions of addressable uh, consumers so that people will think up and promote applications that drive revenue, that provide quality of life issues, telemedicine, distance learning. So Maine is right in that we need to promote infrastructure and that those end products and services need to be left to smarter folks. That sounds very much a reasonable way, and we can only hope that sanity prevails as we um, as we move forward. Let's take a few minutes here uh, to talk about um, the economic development side of things. What are some of the biggest um, – let's do this in two parts. So let, what are some of the biggest economic impacts in a involving larger companies, and what are some of the big economic impacts involving, like, startups, entrepreneurs, home-based businesses? that you've seen so far? Well, you get a company like eBay or Adobe uh, or others. Everybody wants to provide connectivity to them, and they and they need big broadband pipes, and so everybody looks to go provide services to them. But the fact is that our economies are based predominantly on small but middle-sized businesses, and these businesses need that type of connectivity too to transfer files. I mean, we, we keep, you know, companies keep talking about downloads, but it's uploads, you know. Now, it's the ability for home-based businesses to, um, we have people that work in the Utopia Network that are producers in California and produce movies like The Pirates of the Caribbean, and they can work more effectively in their underwear in, in West Valley, uh, doing major uploads than they can if they lived in Hollywood right next door. Um, and those those businesses pay taxes, uh, provide for jobs and benefits, and, and that type of connectivity is just not to be had. Or if it is, it's so prohibitively expensive. Uh, you know, you're talking about um, somebody in Brigham City, for example, being able to get a gig at their home for $199, a gig. What could you do with a gig, Craig? I mean, that's that's kind of what we've been talking about. What can you do with a gig? And many of our homes and most of our average speeds right now are 100 meg up and down. So uh, when you're talking about being able to do that and do it affordably and not have to – we don't even really talk about speeds anymore on Utopia because it's just really unlimited. If you need more, it's there and uh -huh. it's available to you. So that's what, that's what these small businesses need. Everybody now, everybody has to be connected. 
And with Utopia, with this community-owned fiber, you're able to get through one service provider or another. Uh, for example, we have Paytech, a very national, renowned um, provider. And we have smaller companies like Brigham.net has more of a local flair. So you can get SIP trunking. You can get major QoS. Uh, you can get redundant paths, but you, you, you really can get anything you want from a national carrier all the way down to regional and, and local providers. And that provides connectivity options and economic uh, development. Interesting. Now, at the, at the individual, because uh, one of my questions on the survey dealt with personal economic development. In other words, making it uh, improving the ability of individuals to improve or increase their personal wealth, uh, a subject not talked about often, but do you see broadband having an impact there? In other words, making, some, making it so that someone can earn more, uh, be more successful as a single person, uh, you know, startup, entrepreneur, what do you see in that realm? See, I, 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 that's where I don't even think we can imagine all the possibilities that could be done if you had both. If you had two things, both you had uh, the, the, the right type of network, and you, then you had uh, connect. Well, you had addressable markets because I mean, think about schools and, and that could be done so that your kids could actually take some of the best education in the world online, real time. We were in Cleveland at a a, a White House initiative and. Uh, they showed us a technology, a holographic technology, brand new, and they had musicians from um, L.A. and some from Atlanta, and then they had real musicians that were up on stage, and you couldn't tell the difference between who was real and who was not, and they could look at each other, and they were doing a jamming session. You had um, physicians who were showing how to do heart surgery uh, online in real time with different types of clamps, you have education, monitoring, home um, monitoring in terms of automation and, and security. But, but see, Craig, that's the thing. We're just poor plumbers. There are so many smart people out there that if you gave them a market with unlimited capabilities, we can't even begin on this conversation to scratch the surface of what's possible. It would be the same thing as you and I sitting back in 1920 trying to imagine a microwave oven or the TV, or, 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 or an iPad. But those things are coming. You know, the ability to walk to your mirror. If anybody's ever seen a day made of glass that Corning put on, you can go to YouTube and go to a day made of glass. And that's part of their vision of what light and glass can do. And those are just some things that would make our life better, more efficient, less pollution in the air, uh, less ozone disturbance, less more effective in how we make money. We're talking that we're a global community, yet we're falling further behind every day, uh, nationally and locally. And so, uh, you know, the economic development, the ability to make money and drive revenues on this are so very real. But we have to provide the networks and the, and the addressable markets, and those technologies will flow naturally like water downhill. Great. Now we have about four minutes left, so I want to take that opportunity to say, not to say, but to ask, um, can you give us like four quick bullet points, or maybe two or three, on um, if you're working with a multi-city project such as Utopia, um, what are like the top lessons that you've learned? Briefly, we got two minutes. Four minutes. Be very clear. 
right from the beginning and what needs to be accomplished, and everybody's got to be on board so that you have it, it's mandated. This is what we want to do. It, it should be open access. It should, it should be you, you can't allow others to control your project. So from a marketing and sales standpoint, you've got to be able to drive uh, connectivity to that network. You have to find the right partners. There are so many entities out there that uh, either consultants or vendors who will rob you blind, and there are some out there that are just good as gold. And so finding, vetting the right uh, equipment, the right type of topology, you know, I would, uh, I know there's a lot of entities, for example, pushing GPON. I would highly urge people to reconsider. But there are so many big companies that are pushing that. Um, I think that you need to do your research. And when you go forward, you have to have a sustainable model. You can't just build it and hope they will come. So many companies in the late 90s just built great, grandiose networks. They were fantastic, but they failed because they just thought that since it was the best thing since sliced bread, that people would automatically flow to it. And you have to attract people. There has to be value-added uh, capability. So there's so many more things. But if you're asking me to bullet point a few of them, those would be some of the most important ones. And don't forget that, that when you look at your profit loss statements, when you look at your outgoing income, you have to, you're, you're going to have to run it much like a private sector would run a business. And, and, and communities are going to have to look at this in terms of it being critical infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. and these projects will work. They, they, it's very possible to make these things work and be highly successful. But you need to learn from all of our mistakes, those that have gone before, and don't make the same and just be smart about how to do it. How to do it. Is there any? Is there one lesson point uh, that'll deal with uh, just dealing with multi-community projects? And you got ten cities, or I'm sorry, you got sixteen cities and different governments. What's the one thing in two minutes that will help a project team keep those people on the same page and and coordinated and working together? You just have to have a very clear understanding of what needs to happen and have everybody in agreement how that, that thing's going to roll forward. And you can't give way to political influences on where it needs to go. Utopia did that. Um, initially, you know, they went to areas that were easiest to build to or where there were community pressures. You've got to have a strategic rollout that, that drives return on investment, and you have to execute it. And if you do that, you'll keep community support. And everybody's got to agree going in that this is what you do, and then you have to execute a plan, and you have to meet your, your obligations. That sounds pretty basic and also a very uh, smart way to go to me because I know that uh, in, in large part thanks to the stimulus, a lot of multi-jurisdiction projects did indeed come together. And uh, and people are moving those forward and they're going to obviously have uh, some issues. And in fact, at the last conference of uh, representatives from cities, someone said, you know, if they heard one more reference to herding cats as an example of... Uh, you know, multi-jurisdictional projects, they they like Ralph or something. But in any event, uh, Todd, it has been a very good uh, discussion, and it's also been very good getting at the heart of the issues that Utopia overcame. And I want to thank you very much for being a guest on, on the show today. We appreciate all your work, and we appreciate the opportunity to uh, represent Utopia in, in this great project. So thank you very much, Greg.
Great. And I want to thank Jay Ovatori, our um, online co-host, for his support, as well as our uh, media partners, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, MuniWireless.com, and Community Broadband Networks. I want to thank our audience for uh, attending another great uh, show, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Take care. Have a good day.